0: Inside Syracuse Basketball with Mike Waters, presented by Syracuse.com.
1: College basketball is a great thing. Anything can happen.
0: Welcome to the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast. I'm Mike Waters. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by former Syracuse basketball player Dan Shays. We talked about Dan's father, Dolph, who was one of four basketball players featured on a mural in downtown Syracuse. The mural will be dedicated on June 22nd. Dan and I talked about his dad's incredible NBA career. Stories of his teammates with the Syracuse Nationals, how Dan was named after Syracuse Nats owner Danny Biasone, and how both Dolph and Danny Biasone despised Red Arback of the Boston Celtics. Well, Welcome back to another edition of the Inside Syracuse Basketball podcast and we got kind of a special treat and a little something different for us today. Instead of our usual, you know, have a former Syracuse player on to talk about his playing days and what it was like to play for Jim Boeheim or go to a Final Four or whatnot, I've asked old friend Danny Shays, who is a former Syracuse basketball player, by the way, but I asked Danny to join us because coming up in just uh, less than two weeks now, on uh, Wednesday, June 22nd in downtown Syracuse, there's going to be the dedication of a mural which is being done on the side of a building in downtown Syracuse. And it features uh, four not only great basketball players, but important figures in the history of, of Syracuse. And that's Brianna Stewart, Earl Lloyd, Manny Breland, and Danny's father, Dolph Shades, uh, who was uh, one of the greatest players in NBA history, uh, a legend with the Syracuse Nationals, Uh, won an NBA title with the Nats in 1955 right here in Syracuse. And we can go into some more of Dolph's accomplishments, but I thought it would be great to invite Danny on and talk a lot about his dad and, and the game back then and some of the legends that he played with and coached your dad coached, right? So I thought it would just be great to kind of do that, especially with the big mural being, uh, you know, set to be dedicated here real soon in downtown Syracuse. So with all that, Danny welcome back to the podcast it's good to have you
1: well thank you Mike this is the highlight of my day so always uh, love the opportunity to get on the horn with you and catch up and talk about some some of the old stories and and keep a lot of those memories alive you know a lot of your younger viewers or people who weren't around uh 75 years ago uh uh you know it's nice to kind of keep in touch uh you know firsthand as you can uh you know with with those days
0: Absolutely. And listen, if this isn't the highlight of your day, we're at least going to make it the most fun part of your day.
1: (laughs) Well, the day's still early, so, uh, you know, we're good.
0: Okay. Now, first of all, you know, what was your reaction to hearing about this mural and the fact that your dad is going to be one of the four folks featured on it?
1: Well, I thought it was a fantastic opportunity for the city. Number one, uh, it does you know, kind of bring that presence uh, of history back to, you know, the basketball history of Syracuse back to the city, but it also expands generations, eras, and, and and other social issues. You know, you talk about the people involved, you know, going back to the founding of the NBA, my dad's era, uh, the Syracuse Nats, one of the original teams in both, uh, you know, the NBL and then the NBA, uh, you know, when it was uh, when they merged, it became the, officially the National Basketball Association in '49. You know, my dad predated that with the sons or with the, uh, with the Nats in 48. So, uh, you know, that was such a, you know, important part in Syracuse history because they were one of the few small market teams to win a world championship. You know, you think about the Green Bay Packers uh, and there aren't that many, of you know, Syracuse to have that distinction, but then you move forward, Earl Lloyd, again, you know, credit as being the first African-American player in the NBA. Uh, obviously Jackie Robinson uh, broke the color barrier in baseball uh, for basketball, it was a little less
0: that dramatic. There are actually three players who kind of came in together
1: uh, that, you know, had that distinction in different, you know, different ways. But uh, Earl Lloyd, the first black player to win an NBA championship, and just a great statesman. Uh, Maggie Breland, you know, obviously had his impact on the city and the university. And then the current era, Brianna Stewart, you know, considered by many the greatest women's player ever, uh, you know, to kind of tie all this together and pass the torch, uh, you know, through both your history and, uh, you know, when you talk about the, uh, uh, you know, the social issues involved to the new generation, of the active generation. So I think kind of tying all these things together, all those things together, you know, really make it a special event.
0: I agree with you. I think those four people, um, you know, all the stuff that they they mean, it's and it, like you said, it goes beyond the game of basketball. There's so many social issues that they all championed. Um, and then the history of it too. I like it. Because, you know, I'm, I'm not from here. I'm not a native, but I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life. And with my wife's family, that does go back a long time. And I know the sense of history the city has. And yet for a while there, the city didn't seem to really honor its history. We lost a lot of old buildings and things that would have been good to have around. I mean, for God's sake, at one point, they almost got rid of the landmark theater. You know, thank God they didn't. You know, but so things like that. So I think it's great to go back and now, you know, Again, honor that history and make sure people remember it. Um, you know, you're talking about your dad and you have like some, th- some things that folks don't understand about your father. I can't tell you how many times I have people ask, tell me, I thought Dolph went to Syracuse.
1: Right. A lot oh, of no, people. Have right, that, no, no. He, he's so closely associated
0: with Syracuse and the city, but no, he didn't go to SU.
1: Yeah, he grew up in New York City, uh, grew up in the Bronx, went to Dewey Clinton High School, and uh, had a great honor there as well. Uh, DeWitt Clinton is one of only two schools that had two NBA players from there make the top 50. Uh, My dad and Nate Archibald uh, both went there, and they actually did a naming ceremony a few years ago uh, where they named the gym after my dad and the court after Nate Archibald, so they kind of tied them both together. Uh, At the time, if you remember I mentioned earlier, there were two leagues. This predated the, the founding of the NBA, although historically they say 46, but I consider it 49. I do too. Uh, my, dad came, my dad came out in 48, was drafted by both the Syracuse Nationals and the New York Knickerbockers. The Knicks had his rights in the territorial draft, being a city kid, and Syracuse took his draft rights uh, in the other league. So there's a bidding war, a frantic bidding war, and for t- just over $2,000 from 5000 for the Knicks, that's, they wouldn't go over that. I think the Nats offered $7,500. Boom, I grew up in Syracuse uh, instead of the city, and, and history was made. Uh, so my dad came up here as a 19 year old kid, graduated college at 19. Uh, another another really interesting story, and uh, you know came up to Syracuse, got off the train. I mean those the old days, right? Just got off the train, and I think he walked over to the Nats offices to sign his contract. I mean it was uh, uh, it was quite a different era back then, but uh, you know the city really you know had a, a great connection to that team. Obviously they were here until uh, you know even after the merger, and then as the NBA. Got bigger and bigger. There's a big push to move the small city teams into the bigger cities. Uh, so, for those of you who know the history, uh, in the early 60s, 63, the league wanted to go west. So, they offered Syracuse either San Francisco or Los Angeles to go west. They declined. So, as you know, the Minneapolis Lakers moved to LA and the Philadelphia team, the Warriors, moved to San Francisco and then Syracuse filled Philadelphia and became the 76ers. So that's where the Nationals are now. Same red, white, and blue colors, same kind of national patriotic theme. Uh, and the, the Nats are now the 76ers. So they still exist. My dad's records, that championship team, all part of now the 76ers history.
0: Yeah. And your dad played one year in Philadelphia and was the player coach that final year. I mean, that is pretty ma- And then he coached after he retired, he coached a couple more years in Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, my dad had a rare thing in, in that era, and that is he had a long playing career. Uh, usually, because the salaries are so low, players just couldn't afford to have long careers. You know, they got married and had kids and just didn't make enough money. Some would have jobs in the summer, maybe, you know, the, the entrepreneurial, sell cars, sell insurance, you know, do something that they could do on the side, you know, had a, what is now considered a side hustle. Uh, or they just, you know, got a job, right, and, and raised their family. So, but my dad played a long time, 16 years. And uh, at that time, it was actually kind of in vogue. Some of the teams were, you know, because of really budget you know, budget items, couldn't afford both. So my dad was player coach for a year and then just was offered, you know, wasn't, he wasn't crazy about it and had to choose between, he ended up taking over as the head coach, retiring as a player. And that is actually one of his regrets. He really said, I really should have gone back to playing because, you know, once you're done, you're done. You can't go back to that. Right. Uh, but ended up coaching full time, uh, was NBA coach of the year. And then in one of the most famous incidents in NBA history, played the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. And that uh, great uh, scene uh, with Johnny Mosh, the Celtics uh, radio guy, go, when Halidex stole the ball, he steals the ball. And that was the clincher that sent the uh, Celtics to the NBA championship, uh, ending that series, uh, you know, very, uh, very hard fought series. And. And uh, so my dad had the distinction of being the only NBA coach to be coach of the year and get fired the same year because they didn't win the championship that year. So that was uh, <laughs> uh, his time in Philadelphia. And uh, and it, at the end of his life, he actually finally had his number retired after all that time. Yeah. Uh, when new ownership came in and uh, realized that for some reason over the years, they had never connected to that history. And uh, so he was able to know his number was retired at the end. And and, uh, and that like really cements That connection between uh, the Syracuse team and and the 76ers?
0: You know, um, he, you know, the team moves to Philadelphia. He's there for a couple of years as a player and then a coach. But you were, you were raised here in Syracuse. He came back. He stayed. Why, what about Syracuse? Why did your dad choose to stay here? What was
1: interesting that when he moved up from New York City, uh, you know, met my mother here in Syracuse. Uh, They got married, and my, uh, uh, you know, all of us were born in Syracuse. You know, so there was that kind of connection. My mom's family was was there uh, at the time, so they decided to move back from Philly. Uh, And actually, it happened again in 1970. He got the job as a head coach of the then Buffalo Braves, Mm
0: -hmm. and you can
1: I set out the trivia question: Which NBA team is now? Uh, the current NBA team was the Buffalo Braves because they moved as well. Uh, But my dad was the head coach there. We moved to Buffalo for, for two years, 70, 71. And when that job uh, ended, he, we, we came back again. And I finished my high school uh, career here in Syracuse. And then uh, obviously went to SU. So that, uh, that, that was his homie. And he was proud of the fact that his name was in the phone book. He was very approachable, very connected to the city. He was just a Syracuse guy. So it was, uh, it, it was, it wasn't home away from home. He'd be, he became a Syracuse uh, landmark.
0: You know, I don't know how many players today would name their kids after the team owner, but your dad did. You're named after uh, the Syracuse Nationals owner, Danny, by by his own.
1: Yeah, he was a great family friend, and it was a very different deal back then. You know, you hear now about the NBA teams owned by the other owners have these big multinational corporations. You know, the Miami Heat's owned by the owner of Carnival Cruise Lines and, uh, you know, Houston by a big restaurateur. Back then, the, uh, <clears throat> Danny owned a, a a bowling alley snack bar. I mean, that was his business. The so Eastwood Eastwood uh, Sports Center. Yep. And it was a very small budget thing, and uh, you know, but he was a great part of the team. Even though he had moved here from Italy, it you know, was was a native Italian, uh, fell in love with basketball, and uh, uh, you know, took on the Nats as the owner. Uh, hosted the All Star game in '61, uh, and as we know historically, the inventor of the twenty four second clock. I think the greatest innovation in sports that really saved the NBA. But he was a, a great family friend. And uh, yeah, I had the honor of being named after Danny and uh, grew up spending time with him, you know, really the rest of his life, uh, you know, here being here in Syracuse. I remember, uh, you know, going over to the, uh, you know, just bowling alley for lunch and and uh, spending time going over to the Eastwood Barbershop and getting our hair cut, and, uh, you know, as a little kid. And, uh, we went to an exhibition game and uh, the Knicks were playing in Buffalo uh, in the early 70s and we all piled into Danny's car, drove two hours to watch the game and I had a buddy of mine in the back seat with me and Dad and Danny in the front seat telling stories and we were just a fly in the wall. I mean it was uh, uh, you know incredible to spend time with him and be uh, you know, over, over his business. You know he had his little office with his you know with the Nats posters and the all-star game poster and the things on the wall and uh, finally was inducted into the hall of fame, unfortunately posthumously. So his family, uh, you know, accepted for him, but uh, you know, again, really considered, I think the greatest innovation in sports, the 24 second clock.
0: And you're right, Danny in the hall, he deserves it. While we're here, I'm going to do what I have to do. Um, My Leo Ferris deserves to be in the hall of fame as well. He, along with Danny came up with the shot clock together and, 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 and Leo's had like his hands all over, Uh, So many other things in basketball history. In fact, Leo Ferris played a role in your dad coming to Syracuse. It was Leo who negotiated the trade between the Tri City Black Blackhawks and Syracuse because Tri City was going to be had the rights to your dad. or was going to draft him, and uh, originally, yeah. yeah. So Leo got the rights to him and drafted him, and and then or got the rights to him, and then he was the one that outbid the Knicks getting Danny Shays into the, to the syracuse as part of the NBL at the time was one of those little crafty moves that eventually forced the merger uh, the next year so Leo Ferris folks remember yeah look up the name
1: 100 percent right mike he's a guy who has been a was a great influencer back in that day he would have been you know in today's era executive of the year he would have been uh you know a real you know a real power broker uh, you know in today's world I mean a guy who was innovative, forward-thinking, and, uh, you know, certainly deserves a huge amount of credit.
0: You talked about you and your buddy being in the backseat of the car with your dad and, and Danny by his own driving the Buffalo. What were some of the stories? You know, what were some of the stories Danny or your dad would tell on those occasions?
1: Well, they, they talk a lot about the, you know, the personality, some of the players, some of the other coaches, you know, uh, uh, neither were Red Hourback fans, for instance. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, everybody who had you, we were Celtic haters back in the day. You know, of course, they because they were the Celtics and, you know, they were winning everything. So, you know, that was a lot of the topic. Danny, you know, was old school, you know, smoked a big cigar. And, you know, I remember, you know, halfway, you know, remember this is the early fall, right? Because the season was a little bit earlier back then. So we're, you know, driving down the freeway. Danny, you know, cranks down his window, throws a cigar out and the wind catches and blows it right in my buddy's lap, almost, you know, set the car on fire. I mean, it was, you know, just those, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, just those fun little pieces of it you know, made it so personable. Uh, you know, for, again, for Danny, it was, um, you know, such a, you know, to him, you know, obviously being a, being an immigrant uh, gave him such a connection, such a foundation with the city, uh, not only being a business owner, but as you know, sports teams become the personality of the city, right? They, they bring everyone together. And for, you know, Danny was so proud of that fact that as an immigrant, you know, he was able to, you know, get so ingrained into, you know, Syracuse, you know, society and history.
0: You were born about 1960, 59? 59. So, you know, your dad played until 64. So you're so young. But right. Did you get to know any of of your dad's teammates and some of the guys that played back in, in those days?
1: Sure. Uh, actually, Johnny Kern lived right up the street from us. So he'd come over for dinner and, uh, uh, you know, knew his family very well through the years. Uh, obviously, Johnny stayed in the league as the announcer for the Bulls. So we, I used to hang out with him in Chicago when we'd play. You know, we'd always, you know, hug and visit. Uh, Larry Costello uh, was a guy who, uh, you know, I stayed acquainted with all the way through the rest of his life. My dad had a basketball camp. Larry would come up and lecture. Uh, he, you know, he'd speak. And then when he got the head coaching job at Utica College, uh, my best friend was his assistant coach. We used to go to games, and and Larry was just around. You know, we'd see him and stuff. Uh, Paul Seymour, we'd see periodically as well. You know, some of the local guys, and uh, you know, Hal Greer, I'd see at all star games, and uh, Earl Lloyd, uh, all the same thing. You know, he'd be you know seeing a lot of the all star events. Uh, his son Kevin and I became pretty close, and we'd uh, uh, like I said get to see him at least a, you know once a year, twice a year basis. Uh, they, they all a lot of those guys stayed connected to the league you know, through those, you know, kind of conference events, either a summer meeting or, or all-star weekend specifically. Uh, and it was great. I mean, it's uh, another funny story. Emmett Bryant uh, from the, from the Buffalo Braves era, Emmett Bryant was the point guard. Uh, and then he and I served on the board of the retired players association together 40 years later. And uh, I used to shag balls for him when I was 10. Uh, you know, and he used to, uh, uh, you know, we still laugh about it, uh Uh, You know, years later, we'd be in a meeting or something and he'd say, hey, I go rebound something for me. Well, you know, just keep razzing me for all the time. But I was a pretty good rebounder, I have to admit. Uh, So, so, yeah, so, you know, kind of saying that connection all the way through was something that, uh, you know, is a great piece
0: of it. You know, what was interesting, you say you're a good rebounder. I'll take your word for it. Um, There you go. Your dad was an excellent free throw shooter. I think, you know, really good for a guy who was big in his era, like six, seven, he shot a really high percentage for free, for free throws. And I looked it up and you were a pretty good free throw shooter too. At Syracuse for your full four year career, you shot just over 80%. And I was wondering, did you, how much did your dad teach and coach you? And whether it was free throws or running set shots or <laughs> whatever else.
1: Well, it's, it's funny. I learned most of my basketball more being around him than him, like taking me in the driveway and doing drills. Okay. Uh, he, he actually started the second basketball camp in America. Another kind of interesting side of it. He and Bob Cousy started camps, I think it was 1951, um, which were, I think, is the first, you know, the specialty camps, basketball specialty camps at the time. I didn't know that. And he, and he ran it for 30 years. Uh, ultimately bought a campgrounds uh, up in Lake George area. And they'd have an eight-week sleepaway camp, you know, boy, you co-ed sleepaway camp, and then one-week basketball camp at the end. Uh, before that, he would run to campgrounds for the week right before school started. And I, and every year he would brought up uh, bring up a pro to do a lecture. I mentioned Larry Costello in the past, uh, Jumpin' Johnny Green, uh, JoJo White from the Celtics, uh, you know, just a variety of guys over the years. Uh, you know, I had to meet some of the Buffalo Brave players uh, in the early 70s, and uh So I learned a lot of my basketball there, but clearly, you know, I would get the lecture about missing free throws. Come on, they're free. You got to make free throws. You know, that was uh, so I I naturally, uh, you know, took on being a good free throw shooter. Uh, But here's an interesting side. note: At one point, this is in the early 90s. Somebody sent me an article uh, that they analyzed uh, NBA players who scored the highest percentage of their points from the free throw line. Okay. Right? Yeah, And you think of guys like, you know, Mo's Malone, Carl Malone, you know, guys get to the line a lot. Adrian Dantley. Turns out that career, Dolph Shays one, Danny Shays two. We were one and two in NBA history <laughs> at getting the percentage of our points from the line. And uh, so not only was that, so you got to get fouled and you got to make them, right? Right, so, you got to make them. Uh, Yes, uh, so that was uh, was a pretty interesting stat. I think we're both still got in be top five. but uh, That's
0: amazing. I never heard that one either. That's a good split. That, yeah. that would have won you a lot of trivia bets at, at, at bars over the year, right?
1: Yeah, my dad would always ask a lot of trivia questions, but you soon figured out that he was always the answer. <laughs> so he uh, you know, wouldn't make that much money at it, but, uh, but it was still fun nonetheless.
0: Um, you know, I looked up that Sixers team. That your dad, I think it was the, the, the last team your dad coached in Philadelphia. Yeah. Will Chamberlain, Billy Cunningham, Hal Greer, Chet Walker, former Duke star Art Heyman, right? Mm-hmm. And then a, a, a couple guys who went on to become <coughs> coaches, Al Bianchi and Bob Weiss. Yeah. That's an incredible team. Just yeah, now. it was,
1: and again, that you know, the Celtics, of course, had what seven Hall of Famers. Oh, on oh yeah, right. I know the team
0: and, they lost to was and, the Hall of Fame team, yeah,
1: and that was the grudge match, right? And uh, you know, the, they actually won the championship the following year. Uh, I think Alex Hannum took over as the coach, if I remember. Uh, but it was a you know, that was a fantastic team. He used to, my dad used to tell me that his biggest uh battle uh, was with Will Chamberlain because Will lived in Harlem and at the time. And so he always wanted to practice in the middle of the afternoon so he could take the train down in the morning, go to practice and then take the train back where the, everybody else was like, come on, we got to practice at 10 in the morning, get done, you know, but then will always complain. So they, they had this back and forth of, you know, <laughs> when they were going to practice, but it was Wilt, right? So wasn't that easy, uh, you know, it wasn't a Solomon-like thing to figure out. Uh, so he said, we yeah, that was one of his the biggest, biggest battles as his coach. What do we do with Wilt during practice? So it's not like, you know, he was, and then if, you know, if Will comes to practice pissed off, right. Then he just beats everybody up. I mean, you know, just cause he's Wilt. Right. And he's, all he has to do is play hard and uh, uh, you know, not got to worry about guys getting hurt.
0: Who else were some of your dad's favorite guys or, or people he admired?
1: Well, he was uh, the same era as Bob Pettit, uh, you know, the great power forward and, uh, so another, another interesting, a couple more interesting trivias for you that will kind of tie some of this together. So if you look at the league historically, right, my dad went through the pioneer era all the way, you know, through the sixties and then coached into the seventies. Right. So, um, and then his last on the court job was 1972. And then he ended up supervising the officials uh, through the late seventies, about the next year you know, till 77, 78. Wow. And um so what was really funny is I'd get into games and my dad loved it. You know, he's still so hyper competitive. He'd be coming to my games. He'd be yelling at the refs. He'd be screaming at the, whatever. And I'm playing the game in Denver and I see him start to come down the aisle. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Uh, he leans over the scores table and, and one of the restaurants by and he goes, I never should have hired you. <laughs> Didn't get a call for two years from that guy after that. Um, so, uh, you know, so so he was still involved. But if you look at, like I said, the era, uh, you know, George Mikan was, even though they overlapped, George was the like the real pioneer. Was you know, as far as the first big NBA star, yeah. uh, and he was the the first all considered the first all-time leading scorer in the in the NBA. George went up to eleven thousand, changed I think eleven six hundred something, and then my dad passed him, and he was the second NBA's all-time leading scorer. Uh, and he held the record up to nineteen thousand two hundred, and then Bob Pettit, who they were contemporaries, Bob was a little behind. Uh, passed them and was the first. So my dad was the first to. Uh, so so George Mike in the first to ten thousand. My dad the first to fifteen thousand, and uh, Bob Pettit was the first to twenty thousand. Okay. And then of course Wilt was Wilt, and then uh, then Kareem is now considered. You know, not, not considered. Now he's the. You know the greatest scorer ever, and we'll see if LeBron can catch him. Uh, but the but you know, so he and Bob Pettit were were great contemporaries. Obviously, later in life, um, uh, you know, my dad and, and Red Auerbach, and the, you know, a lot of the Celtic guys from that era, uh, uh, Bill Russell, who I you know still see at all star events, and you know, very gracious guy, even though he's very to himself. Um, uh, you know, so you know during during that time, and, then, and now there's the you know kind of the, the changeover is that era are they're kind of like World War II vets, right? Where uh, I think Bob Pettit's what, 91, and, and Bill Russell almost 90, and uh, Bob Cousy uh, is still around. Cousy and you know was another guy who he would spend a lot of time with at golf together. Have John Havlicek uh, when he was alive, they used to do a lot of your know, charity golf events together and all star games, and uh, you know so he actually did hang around with a lot of his contemporaries, and uh, you know certainly guys on his uh, uh, you know some of the teammates, the Costellos, the Paul Seymours, you know guys that he uh you know used to see uh you know continuously uh moving forward so uh you know those were you know, those are kind of his you know his really peer group the guys he really enjoyed being around and and then of course he loved coming to All-Star weekend every year and and meeting more and more of the younger players you know then obviously when I was in the league for for my stretch he'd be around at games and so he'd have a you know a strong connection to my era guys you know coming to the locker room and you know, coming to games, that kind of thing, you know, the, so, you know, guys like, you know, Penny Hardaway and earlier, you know, Kiki Vanderway, his son, Ernie, I'm sorry, his dad, Ernie uh, was an NBA player. My dad played again. So, you know, we've been close to the Vandeway family for a long time. So it's uh, Ernie
0: Ernie, Van, Ernie Vanderway played his college ball right down the road at Colgate.
1: Right. So, so that's, uh, and, and Ernie was another interesting story. He was actually in the NBA uh, while he was in med school and, and with the Knicks and he would only play home games because he couldn't miss class to go on the road. And uh, he ended up as a working doctor his whole uh, his whole career. So, yeah, so he, he was actively in med school while he was playing in the NBA. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and, I did you not know, know that. Kiki, does, Kiki is the, uh, I think, the fourth. And then his son, uh, Reese, is the fifth. Uh, so, Ernest Maurice. Uh, so, yeah, so that's a you know, great family history is, uh, uh, and great athletes. His brother is a great volleyball player. I think his sister is a swimmer, Olympic swimmer uh, Olympic lim- caliber. So they've, they've had a great, uh, you know, great family history as well.
0: I, I got to show the audience to, if anyone's watching on video, great. If not, you can listen to it, but I'm going to show Danny this, What a few prized possessions here in the, in the home office. And this is one of them. Look at this. This is a copy, not a copy. It's it's, it's the program from the 1961 NBA all-star game that was held in Syracuse. And right here on page two, Dolph Shays, one of three Nats in the game. There's Dolph with Hal Greer and Larry Costello. How about that? The the all-star game right here in Syracuse, and your dad was in it.
1: You know, and we talked about some of those pieces. uh, You know, you and I were talking earlier about the 24-second clock. The actual original 24-second clock is uh, in the LeMoyne College Library. Uh, The Bison family had donated it to, uh, you know, to LeMoyne. Uh, so I was on the second floor in a big glass case, and when I was I was there for uh, doing a, uh, a history of the game uh, show with uh, Vince Carter on ESPN Plus. Check it out uh, about the twenty-four second clock. It was uh, it was actually turned out pretty well. Uh, they gave us a tour of some of the memorabilia, and they had the original scorebooks from the championship series in '55. And so she pulled them out, and you we know, got to see where they you know they used to mark everything in pencil. You have one point, two point, and they had the original scorebooks from uh, you know, from the finals. So you know, a lot of that great history, uh, and as you know, the uh, uh, you know the Marriott downtown, the former Hotel Syracuse, Shaughnessy's has a lot of uh, this. The old Syracuse memorabilia, uh, the original court from the War Memorial uh, is down there. It's the floor of the uh, of the restaurant, and they have the center court circle hanging on the wall. Uh, you know, a great connection to the old days. So uh, you know, a lot of that stuff is still around. You know, a lot of pride in it. And like I said, when you when you tie this back to this kind of mural concept to bring that history forward, to you know, to like a you pass the torch to a Brianna Stewart. And, uh, you know, obviously we think of Syracuse basketball now as orange, uh, right. With the, the, Jim Boeheim era at Syracuse. And, uh, you know, so it's nice to kind of connect some of these pieces together and, uh, you know, to see some of the, you know, the amazing things that, that, that are Syracuse, uh, Syracuse pride.
0: You know, um, earlier you mentioned how much your dad signed for coming out of college, number four, overall draft pick, he signed Syracuse for about 7500 The Knicks offered him less, right? So, you know, a few weeks ago on ESPN, J.J. Redick and talking about Bob Cousy and comparing, you know, guys from the past to the current players, kind of really in a condescending way talked about Cousy and, and players from that era, you know, being a bunch of, you know, playing against plumbers and carpenters or whatever. It was a plumbers comment and like, I just wondered, I mean, you played in the NBA for 18 years against guys who J.J. Reddick probably would at least remember, (laughs) right? But And you, because of your family's history and growing up here, you remember further back. Well, I wonder what your reaction was to J.J. Reddick's comments.
1: Well, see, it's funny. That's the kind of thing you can look at and you can say, well, if J.J. Reddick played in my era, Mm -hmm. he'd have been useless. Because back then you could hand check. You could body guys, you could belly up, you could pressure, you could, you know, you know, do all these things. You know, he's a successful player because you can't touch him. You got to play with your hands behind your back. You got, you know, the court spread in different ways. There's no nobody's using centers. And, uh, you know, but his game is suited to today's era, uh, not suited to my era. Uh, you know, they talk about you know how would have LeBron been and if he had to do what Jordan had to be put up with what Jordan had to put up with, right? Mm. And uh, would he have scored as many points or, or Kevin Durant or you know how would those guys? So it's all it's been a you know a constant uh, conversation over the years. Uh, it's funny I was watching a, a ESPN thing and, and Stephen A. and and uh, I forget who the other guy was. We're talking about the five greatest scorers in NBA history. Who would be on on their Mount Rushmore, right? And naturally, as well as is it, is, is it Kobe or Jordan? Is it LeBron or Carmel? Like, you know, they're comparing the guys with a lot of points because they played in an era where you can score a lot of points, right? But if you if you actually break it down, uh, you know, different ways, you know, my dad was probably one of the top five scorers in NBA history. When you look at it from the fact you're trying to compare eras, he played pre-shot clock where, you know, the average scores were in the 80s. Right. Right. And so if you take the percentage of points that he scored – And move it into the post-shot clock era, you know, he played half a screw before, half after, you know, he's probably good for another six or 7,000 points. There was no three-point line, and he was a guy who, you know, who shot from deep, right? And if there was a three-point line, his game would have been focused around that, right? Obviously, getting to the free-throw line. So, if you look at, you know, that era and that style of play… Yeah. It, it, it's way different. Uh, you know, if Jordan had played today, he might've got 80,000 points because you know, can't hand check, right. <laughs> it's, everything's, everything's a you know, flagrant foul going in line. Uh, you know, it's, it's just such a whole deal. You know, the court's so spread, you know, there's no centers clogging it up. There's no flagrant fouls. There's no, you know, you, you can't touch anybody, you know, so would Jordan have gotten who knows how many points playing in today's era.
0: So it's a tough thing yeah. to do. Yeah. I do. Sorry. I, I didn't love JJ's comments because if he was referring to the fact that players had offseason jobs, then he's not taking into account what they made. You know, right. like you were talking about earlier, if you're making seventy five thousand dollars back then, you're not just sitting around or not sitting. you're not able to just train and work out in a gym with a trainer and your own chef in the offseason season whether you're selling insurance or working at a car dealership or whatever, or being a plumber, NBA players back in those days had to augment their salaries. Sure.
1: Well, it's disrespectful. It doesn't mean they weren't
0: good players.
1: Well, but it's also disrespectful to what they did. I mean, look at the era. They traveled by train. They had no train. They didn't have trainers, right? They wore Chuck Taylors. You know, my dad got two pair of shoes for the whole year. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, it was wash your own uniforms. It was you know, you know, so I mean, there's nothing about it that you can compare with today's game. I mean, it's they had you know worse conditions than high school players today, and uh, and yet they fought through and they were and they were, you know, like I said, you didn't get thrown out for fighting. Uh, guys played you know hurt all the time, uh, broken bones. You know, my dad played, broke his wrist, put on a cast and played, broke his other wrist, put on another cast, played with two hands and wrists, still average 18 a game. Right. So, uh, you know, I mean, I think, I just think that's disrespectful to the guys who came before and look, everybody, you know, you know, the game improves right over time. You can sit there and say, well, a lot of people think eighties is the best era ever, you know, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, you know, when you had the Kareem's and the Moses and, and, but yet because every position was loaded. Now it's run down and shoot a three, run back and shoot a three, run down and shoot a three, run back and shoot a three. I mean, is it the, you know, is that the best way to play basketball? Sure. You you make a lot of threes, but, uh, you know, is that, you know, it's just the evolution of the game. And so, uh, so like I said, I think all the, all the eras, you know, get the, you know, need the respect for what it took to do it. And, uh, uh, you know, back then, like, you, it's funny you talk about, the uh, all uh, you know, the all-star game. 1951 was the first all-star game. My dad was only an all-star 12 years because they didn't have the game his first three years in the way, right? They didn't start until his fourth year or else he would have a 15-time All-Star, probably, right? Uh, and, the o- and the only reason they had it, uh, it was hosted by Boston, because the owner of the Celtics was the only owner rich enough to take a loss if it bombed. Nobody knew if it was going to work or not. Oh, wow. So they actually have a story about him and the commissioner at the time standing in the lobby counting bodies going through the turnstiles to make sure they were getting And they said, oh, once we hit 8,000, I think was the number, or 10,000, one of those. They hit that, they go, we're break even. Okay, now we can enjoy the game. <laughs> but that's what it took to have an All Star game, you know that. And again, you talk about, uh, uh, you know, what would guys do for the love of the game? You know, my dad would always say, "I'd have played for free." You know, we love the game so much. And uh, you know, my coach in the '80s, Doug Moe, used to complain about tissue paper athletes. Oh, you guys are, you know, if you got a bumper or a bruise, you got to, your agents telling you to sit out the game and not risk anything. And you know, guys, my dad and I don't know that there's a an right answer. I'm just saying of, the, of that era, you know, that the guys were, you know, were made out of shoe leather. You know, they played. Uh, you know, Johnny curse was one of the funniest guys ever. Uh, he used to joke that on, on my gravestone, it's going to say, see, I was right. My feet were killing me. And uh, so, you know, cause again, you're playing in Chuck Taylor's no, no trainers, no ankle tape, no, no treatment, no ice, you know, nothing. And uh, you know, they just toughed it out game after game.
0: Because I can't completely let up on the Bob Cousy thing. I will refer to the movie blue chips, and he played the athletic director to Nick Nolte's coach. And there is right. a scene where they're talking with each other in a gym and Coozy who by this time is probably in his late sixties, maybe even 70 years old is shooting free throws. And I've read that that scene, he doesn't miss a free throw while they're just chatting. And Nick Nolte even throws a line. Don't you ever miss? It was unscripted, but coozy that whole scene. So Bob coozy sitting there making free throws. So I don't know whether he could play in today's era or not, but you could certainly put him at the free throw line. Um, You know. So anyway, moving on. Um, You know, your your dad was a great player, and I and it's just such a treasure that this city needs to hold on to because of the fact he did embrace it and decided to stay here and raise a family here. Um, So I'm I'm so glad that to see him go up on this mural soon.
1: I am too. It's a great. You mentioned a guy who just took on being a Syracuse guy uh, growing up in New York city, which normally is such a, uh, you know, kind of dominating force, uh, comes up to us. You remember this is Syracuse in, in, uh, you know, in the late forties, right, right after the war, he went to, you know, came up in 48, uh, and, uh, you know, just spent the rest of his life. And like I said, he was proud of being a community guy. He had his name and phone number in the phone book and, you know, you could call him up or see him at the coffee shop or the donut shop. And, you know, was a business owner here in town and, Uh, You know, was a Syracuse guy, and he always considered himself being Syracuse, not New York City.
0: Well, I I consider myself lucky to have met him. Uh, I know he passed away about seven years ago now, but he was tremendous. And there was one there was every once in a while, like every other year, I would get invited to speak to this one group, um, I think, at his temple. And they would have me come talk about basketball. (laughs) And I'm sitting there going, well, you've got Dolph Chase sitting over there. Why are you inviting me? <laughs> it's like, you don't need me. You've got a regular here. And, you know, and he was so awesome. And he would give me a hard time and, you know, a few jokes at my expense. And just, he was, he was a tremendous guy and I miss him.
1: You know, so.
0: And I look forward to seeing you at the dedication. You're coming into town, correct?
1: I am. Uh, I am. that will see you notice. there.
0: All right. So again, once, uh, just to remind everybody Wednesday, June 22nd, downtown Syracuse, the murals unveiled Brianna Stewart, Manny Breland, Earl Lloyd, and Dolph Shays father to Dan. Danny, thank you so much for being here on the podcast.
1: You bet. Thanks
0: Mike. I want to thank Dan for joining me on the podcast today and thanks to you out there as well for listening in, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. And follow all of our complete coverage of Syracuse basketball on Syracuse.com. Until next time on the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast, I'm Mike Waters.